Those are some beautiful truths. Dance for Jesus. Fly to Jesus. How can that happen? How can frail, fallen people like you and me, struggling along in life, just trying to honor Christ, tripping and falling along the way, getting back up by his grace, how can that be true of us? That's good news. I think one of the other songs that the team led us in this morning helps unpack that for us. It's from the song Cornerstone. This particular verse gripped me this morning, and I trust that it did or will for you as well. It says, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Faultless. Wow. That's good news. The only way that that can ever happen for you or for me is if God intervenes in our lives and does all the heavy lifting, right? Because God is holy. And his righteous, righteous standard for health and well-being on this earth and in the next is holiness. And we fall far short of that. But God in his mercy sent his son. The word, the one that we've been worshiping this morning. The one who's fully God. Always has been. And yet fully man. And he lived a perfect and sinless life and died a death he didn't deserve on Calvary's cross to purchase our freedom, our redemption, to make perfect payment for the penalty for our sins so that in him, when we trust him, his person, his work, the end result is is we can stand faultless before him, before the throne. And that's the good news. That's the essence of Jesus' ministry. That's why he came. And in the Gospel of Mark, we have seen Jesus teaching and preaching the kingdom of God and helping people understand these things slowly, by degrees. And as Kenny taught us last week, he says now in in the Gospel of Mark, we've come to a pivot point where Jesus is transitioning his main focus of ministry from the crowds teaching them and preaching them and healing them and telling them about the kingdom of God. Now he is setting his face on Jerusalem. He is going to walk that walk, that path of suffering, by which he will purchase the salvation of all those who will believe in him so that they, like us, can stand faultless before the throne. And he, as he moves in that direction, he wants to spend some intentional time now focusing on his disciples, this band of 12 disciples that have been following with him, that have been participating with him in his ministry. They've done some marvelous things, and like last week we've seen, they've done some marvelous failures, right? They thought they had this, but they weren't depending on the Lord. So Jesus knows what's before him. He knows he's walking toward Jerusalem and there he will lay down his life. He will give it up freely 
and what's going to happen to him is going to rock his disciples' world, and he wants to focus now on them and help prepare them, help them to understand what is, what is coming so that when he gives up his life and he is killed, when he is buried, when he rises again, and when he ascends, he will entrust this ministry that he began to them. And now he is going to begin intentionally preparing them to be able to carry that ministry. So today, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, throw your hand up in the air. Our ushers were glad to to come and, and bring you a Bible. We want you to have a copy of God's Word in your hand so that you can read along with us, so that you can study your way through this section of Mark chapter 9 with us. Put it in the hair, in the end, hand, there you go. There's one over here and one over here. No shame in this. We'd love to bring you a copy of the Word. When you get it, please turn to Mark chapter 9, and we'll begin reading today at verse 30. I've titled this sermon, But They Didn't Understand. And that's going to be very clear to us in the opening few verses that Jesus' disciples just didn't understand a lot about the kingdom of God, a lot about the things of God. That seems to be a hindrance to them, and that seems to be the focus of Jesus' ministry here. This entire passage from 9.30 through 9.50, the crowds are gone, and Jesus is focusing on his disciples. He's going to help them understand some things because they just don't understand. So today I have six things from this passage that they didn't understand that as we walk our way through them, looking at the fa- their failings to understand these concepts, I want us to do so thinking about ourselves as fellow disciples and wondering if maybe we're failing to understand some of these concepts about the things of God as well. So let's bow our heads in prayer before we open and read the word, and let's ask the Spirit to teach us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We worship you, and we praise you for you are worthy. We praise you for your wise plan to send your Son, and we praise you for your wise plan to send the Spirit, that we might not be left here as orphans to figure this out on our own, but Lord, you are indwelling us causing your truths to land on our hearts for what they truly are, the words of God, and by your grace, through the power of your spirit, bringing about change in our lives, allowing and empowering us to bear fruit that glorifies your name. So Lord, we recognize that we fail to understand a few things too. Would you be so gracious as to teach us some things today? And when we leave here, would we go out in the power of the spirit ready to impact this world, your world, to the glory of your name. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen. The first thing that they didn't understand is they did not understand God's wise plan to secure the kingdom. Beginning at verse 30, they went on from there and they passed through Galilee and did not, he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. They did not understand it. They had been with Jesus. They had seen his unparalleled authority. 
They had seen him, but they did not understand that this one called the Son of Man, and Mark has used this term to describe Jesus at least five times now to this point. They understood that Jesus was the Son of Man. They knew that. They recognized it. They had seen him display this kind of authority that is characteristic of the Son of Man, but they didn't have a category in their minds for how the Son of Man would be delivered into the hands of men. It didn't add up for them. That's because their primary understanding of the Son of Man came from Daniel 7. Listen to Daniel 7, beginning at verse 13, and then I'll skip down to 27. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Now, these disciples had been with Jesus. They had listened and observed his ministry as he went onto the scene proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. They had observed him exercising his authority, authority in his teaching. They had seen him exercise authority over unclean spirits like nobody else had been able to do. They'd seen him exercise authority and dominion over illnesses, physical infirmities, He had exercised authority to forgive sins, something God alone has the ability to do. And they'd seen him exercise dominion over the wind and the waves by calming the storms. Jesus was unique in his exercise of his authority. And they had seen Jesus transfigured before them. And they had heard the voice of God affirming him and exhorting them to listen to him. So there was no doubt in these disciples' minds that Jesus was indeed the Son of Man that the prophet Daniel was talking about. But what they didn't understand, according to Daniel, all of these dominions and all of these nations and tongues were going to serve the Son of Man. And it didn't make sense to them then that he would be delivered into the hands of men. And I think the key to understanding that is the passive form of that verb there in verse 31. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. It's not that the hands of men are going to reach out and grab Jesus and pull him down out of God's will and kill him, but he is going to be delivered into the hands of men. It is the will of God himself that Jesus would be delivered into the hands of men. And in securing the kingdom, it was necessary to redeem the people by making this perfect atoning sacrifice. That's the essence of the gospel. The disciples were longing for the kingdom. They were longing for freedom from their political oppressors, but they didn't realize that the Son of Man who had come is Jesus, but that the necessity of his suffering and death in order to make perfect atonement for the sins of men, in order to establish and secure the kingdom. They didn't understand it. 
And Jesus had told them about this before, back in chapter 8. Remember, he begins talking to them about the necessity of his suffering and, and being killed at the hands of men. And Peter puts his heart out there like he typically does, right? He says, no, Lord, far be it that that should ever happen to you. And what happened? Jesus rebuked him. He rebuked him. He said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not thinking about the things of God, but you are thinking about the things of men. So the first time Jesus explains this to them, they weren't able to comprehend it. They didn't understand it because they were thinking about the things of men. They wanted their part in the kingdom. They wanted freedom from their oppressors. And now this time when Jesus explains these things of his upcoming suffering and death and resurrection, it's the same reason they don't understand it. Because they're distracted with their minds set on the things of men. The second thing that they didn't understand, they didn't understand God's definition of greatness. Well, Jesus is trying to teach them what is coming for him in his suffering, they're preoccupied with this, beginning in verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing along the way? But they kept silent. You see, they didn't understand these things that Jesus was teaching them, and they remained silent. They were afraid to ask him, because the last time they spoke up, it resulted in a rebuke. Have you ever been in a learning situation where the concept being taught, whether it's in a classroom or whether it's sitting one-on-one -on -one with your spouse or whatever the case is, the concept being talked about or taught, you just don't really comprehend. But you've not been willing to raise your hand or call attention to yourself that you don't understand because of your pride. Your pride won't let you, right, stand up and say, I don't get this even though everybody else in the room probably doesn't get it either. That's certainly been my experience. I think that's part of what's going on here. They remember when Peter put out, put out there and, and demonstrated that he didn't understand it and the rebuke that Peter received from Jesus. And yet, so they, didn't, they remained silent. But when they get to Capernaum, Jesus, the shepherd, <laughs> asks them a question that invites them to draw out their heart. What were you discussing along the way? And again, they remain silent. Again, their pride prevents them from fessing up on what they were discussing, right? They weren't thinking about the things of God. They were talking about who's the greatest. Listen here, uh, verse 34. But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down, and he called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them and taking them into his arms, he said to him, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus knows what they were discussing on the way, I think. You get the sense that that's what's behind him asking, what were you discussing Notice how tender he is when they remain silent. They're showing hardness of heart. They're showing that they don't get it. And he doesn't just lash out and rebuke them. He doesn't tell them like he did last Sunday in that passage, oh, faithless generation, how long shall I bear with you? No, he sits down in the house. He takes the teaching position of a rabbi and he calls the 12 to him and he begins to teach them. 
he begins to teach them the very thing that if they did understand it, they wouldn't have been having the conversation that they had been having on the way. He begins to teach them that God has a different definition of greatness than man does. You see, man's definition of greatness is being that one on top, that one under, under whom there are a multitude of people serving at their beck and call. One who is at the top and is domineering because that's what they had seen politically demonstrated and that's in our hearts, that's what we want, right? We want to be el numero uno. We want to be number one and we want people to look to us and that's what these people, the, the disciples are struggling with. They didn't understand that the sign of significance in the kingdom of God, the definition of greatness in the kingdom of God belongs to servants, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. The servant must be warm, must be welcoming, even welcoming to one of such a low position. Jesus brings a child into their midst and he wraps him up in his arms and in a beautiful, visual, tangible demonstration, he takes one, a child in that, culture was on the lowest rung of significance in the society and yet Jesus wraps him up and shows that this little child even though in your eyes in this society has very little worth he's of great worth and the one who's great in the kingdom will love and serve and consider this one of seemingly insignificant stature seemingly insignificant position in the society will consider this one important and will seek to serve and support and to love that one. So how about us at Grace? How are we doing? How do we define greatness here? Do we understand that greatness, the sign of greatness in the kingdom is servanthood? We look around and we rejoice that there's so much good evidence that that we do get it. Many of you out there understand that significance in the kingdom of God, that greatness in the kingdom of God belongs to those who are serving. I think of our wonderful children's volunteers who serve in the nursery, our elementary faithful folks like Gary Halverson and Jan Buck, just to name a couple. There's others of you. Actually, they're all serving right now during this service. I think of core group leaders like Ben Jones and Beth Stevens, just to name two of a number. I think of our ushers like Cy. I think of our food bank volunteers like Martha and Connor who show up week in and week out and just offer themselves. Offer themselves in humble service to the Lord and really demonstrate that they get this. So we rejoice that so many of you are serving in such beautiful ways, significant ways. Some ways that are unnoticed. Jesus is teaching that greatness in the kingdom of God belongs to such. And yet we have room to grow, don't we? You heard in our announcements that we are looking for servants to show up and to help us with Adventure Week. You've heard us announce that we're looking for summer volunteers to love and serve on our children uh, in the nursery as well as in the elementary classrooms so that the regular teachers can step back for a little season and be refreshed We need people to step up and to demonstrate they understand this by serving, serving the little ones. 
And this is probably a timely message because membership class is coming up on Friday. And that would be a way for you, if you're not a member yet, to dive in and explore what it means to be a member of grace and how important it is that each member of the body be serving according to their giftings, be serving according to the needs of the body so that none of the needs of the body go unmet. That's how God has designed his church to work. So do we, like these disciples, do we struggle with understanding significance in the kingdom of God? Or do we get it? The mark of greatness in God's kingdom is servanthood. And in the next scene, the disciples come upon someone who is serving in one of the ways that Jesus had empowered them. They come upon a man who is exercising a demon. He's casting a demon out of somebody. And what do they do? They try to prevent him. Look at verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. They did not understand that God's kingdom was bigger, is bigger than their little group. They had been with Jesus. Jesus had empowered them to do these unique and tangible, powerful expressions of ministry. They had preached the word and they had seen people come to faith. They had healed folks from their physical infirmities. They had cast out demons. And most recently, they had failed to cast out demons because their stake in how to do that was in who they were as part of the inner circle of Christ rather than whose power it was that would deliver it. That was the essence of Kenny's sermon last week. This kind can only come out by prayer. They had demonstrated prayerlessness. They had demonstrated that they didn't really understand how God's kingdom was working and advancing through them. They thought it was because of them, not because of Christ. So they come upon this one who is now effective in a way that they had failed to be effective. He's actually casting out a demon in their name, in Christ's name. So this is one who, though he's not been following closely with them because they didn't recognize him, he's apparently one that has come to Christ under Jesus' ministry. And in Jesus' name, he recognizes a need in this person and he casts out the demon. And God is pleased to empower him in that ministry, understandably because he is a person of faith. Not because of who he is, but because of who his faith has been placed in. It's because of who he is depending upon. And instead, I think, again, their pride comes to the forefront. And they don't recognize him because he's not following us. And they, they intend, they try to prevent him from doing that. And Jesus, again, just gently corrects them. Don't stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. So how about us? Do we connect with and support people in ministry outside of this church? Do we understand that God's kingdom is bigger than our little circle? I praise the Lord that our youth have been traveling every summer down to Baja and partnering at, at um, Mission to Mexico and, and helping and coming alongside of fellow believers in Christ there and joining them in their work. 
helping them, serving them in just beautiful, tangible ways through work projects, building projects, as well as door-to-door evangelism. We get to see what God is doing in that church and have the privilege of coming alongside and supporting them and rejoicing at the things that we see God do there. That's what it means to recognize that God's kingdom is bigger than our little circle. The disciples did not understand it, but eventually John did come to understand it. In 3 John, this, this one, John, who had pre- sought to prevent this exorcist from performing that ministry, he now, by the end of his life, has gotten it. And in 3 John, verse 5, he says this, Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. They were strangers, but they were going out for the sake of the name, and now he is encouraging people who he is discipling to support them in their ministry. The fourth thing that these disciples did not understand is that it matters the way we treat Jesus' disciples. It really matters. Look at verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Simply coming alongside of somebody who is in ministry and loving them and supporting them, accepting them, recognizing that God is at work in them and through them, supporting them in a way as simple as offering them a cup of cold water brings a reward. It matters. It matters how we treat Jesus' disciples. And in verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. It matters how we treat other disciples. Now, these little ones that Jesus is talking about in verse 42, he's not necessarily referring to the little child that he had just wrapped his arms around and teaching them about greatness in the kingdom. He's talking about the little ones who have trusted him faith, people who are new to the faith. It matters how we treat other disciples. And if we cause someone to stumble, it's better if we were to have a giant millstone hung around our neck and to be cast into the sea. There are great consequences for mistreating a fellow disciple of Jesus. How we treat his disciples matters. Now hear these words from Jesus as a heart of a protecting shepherd. He wants to take care of that little one who has trusted him. And he does that by speaking a word of warning to other little ones, to other disciples of Christ, and warning them not to cause the other one to stumble. We have great freedom in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's great freedom for us. There's nothing outside of us that going into us can defile us. We're free to eat and drink. But I ask this. In our freedom, do we sometimes cause a brother or a sister to stumble? It's possible. And we are called to take seriously the welfare not only of our soul, the welfare uh, the increasing sinlessness in our soul, but in the souls of others. So how we steward our freedom in Christ matters. 
Let me ask you this. Do you steward your freedom in a way that does not cause others to stumble? Are you eating or drinking in a way that does not cause another disciple to sin? Does this idea come to your mind as you consider your own sanctification? Are you currently fighting for another person's holiness by the way you live your life? Discipleship is a collective thing. Our culture is individualistic and we we tend to look at just me and Jesus and and my personal sanctification, which, by the way, Jesus is going to speak to next. And we will most effectively fight for one another's holiness if we are jealously fighting for our own holiness, which brings us to our fifth point. The disciples did not understand that they must be radically committed to their own sanctification. Sin is a serious business, and it comes with eternal and fiery consequences. Picking it up in verse 43, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go into hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus repeatedly talks and says it is better. It is better. If there's something causing you to sin, he says hack it off because it's better for that to be hacked off and for you to endure that pain than to be thrown into hell. Now the things he's talking about, hacking off a hand, hacking off a foot, plucking out an eye, that doesn't sound better to me than anything. I've done a lot of stuff vocationally. I have shredded my hands with barbed wire fencing out on the ranch. I have been welding overhead and dropped molten metal on my forehead and burned a divot in in my forehead. I have dropped a drag section on my foot and the, and the spike penetrated down in between my toes. I've done a lot of crazy stuff to my body. And what Jesus is talking about here doesn't sound better to me than anything, right? That sounds painful. Now, a note, he's not telling us that self-mutilation is the way to holiness. That's not what he's teaching. But he is teaching that things as precious to you as your body parts things as precious to you of things that when they get injured are intensely painful, those things are to mean less to us than our struggle against sin. As disciples of Christ, we are to be so invested in our own struggle against sin that we need to be willing to cut anything off that distracts our eyes from Christ and puts our eyes down on the, and our affections down on the things of this earth. So what are those things? What are those things for you? What are those things that need to be cut off? What are those things that Paul would say characterize the old man, that old man who's to be taken off like an old coat and discarded so that the new man in his ways and his priorities and his affections can be put on so that we have a growing holiness, so that we are partnering with our own sanctification. Now make no mistake, it's God who is doing the work of sanctification. It's God who purchases our salvation and it's God who works it out in, by degrees. 
transforming us more and more back into the image of Christ in whose image we were made. He says it's better for us to be willing to cut those things off than to go into hell. Hell must be a terrible place. It must be a terrible place. Alan Gomes is writing a book called 40 Questions on Heaven and Hell. And he talks about the Gehenna of fire, which is what is mentioned here in this passage. It's it's the word that's translated as hell. He talks about it in this way. He says, bear in mind that in the Gehenna of fire, the wicked will not suffer as disembodied spirits, but as complete, though corrupt, human beings, having body and soul. There is therefore every reason to expect the wicked in hell to suffer great bodily pains there. This suffering will take place from the inside out, as it were. It will not arise from God boiling sinners in a cauldron or turning them over slowly on a rotisserie spit as vulgar, cartoonish depictions would have it. Rather, they will suffer the natural consequences of rejecting God and his goodness toward them, in which they will experience the pain of complete abandonment, remorse unmingled with comfort, and the relentless torments of their own consciences, which will burn forever but never finally consume. This cup they will drink to the full, experiencing unmitigated pain in both body and soul. That is a human description about as clear as I can imagine of what hell would be like. That sounds awful. I don't want myself to endure that. I don't want anyone to endure that. And praise God that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ so that that will not be our reality. But we will be able to stand faultless before the throne when we put our trust in Christ. But we need to recognize that sin has ongoing consequences in our life and we as disciples of Christ need to be committed to our own sanctification to the point where we're willing to cut off whatever it is that would distract us from the pursuit of holiness. That's something that the disciples just didn't seem to understand. They didn't seem to understand that level of commitment to their own sanctification. And I certainly understand that. When I think of my own commitment to my own sanctification, I can become weary of struggling against sin. And I can become passive in it. And I can just long for the comforts of life rather than for seeking for those things to continually be cut off that I might grow in holiness. And it's to that situation that Jesus speaks now in verse 49. He says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Jesus is saying here that he is committed to the sanctification of every one of his disciples. Everyone will be salted with fire. That's probably one of the more cryptic statements that Jesus has said. Salted with fire. When you think of salt and when you think of fire, what comes to mind? Think salt. It's, it's a preservative. It's a seasoning, right? It has a preserving effect. It can, when you don't have a refrigerator, you put it on meat and it can preserve meat. 
okay? Preserved meat in the absence of refrigeration, but it's also something that was very important to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Listen to Leviticus 2, verse 13. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Salt is important in the sacrificial system. Fire is important in the Old Testament sacrificial system. It was fire that would consume these things that were offered to God on the altar. Everyone will be salted with fire. Paul talks about believers in the New Testament to be presenting their bodies to God as a living sacrifice. Everyone will be salted with fire. Peter talks about fire in a way. He calls them a a fiery trial. 1 Peter 4, beginning at verse 12, Peter says this. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is the time of judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Jesus is committed to the sanctification of every one of his disciples. And he is far more concerned with your holiness than your happiness. When you become complacent in your own struggle against sin, he in his grace and his love and his mercy Salt's also a sign of this permanent covenant between God and his people. So being salted with fire, that's a sign. When you come into trials, these fiery trials that Peter is talking about, it's not a sign that God has abandoned you. It's more a sign that God is with you and is partnering with you. He's committed, more committed to your sanctification than you are. And he's willing to use difficult situations to drive out our dependence on anything other than him. Paul knew it. He talked about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, taking to the places where he feared for life itself, and he says, but that was so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Jesus is committed to every one of his disciples' sanctification. And as we go through these fiery trials, as we go through these difficulties of life, we should allow them to drive us to Jesus, to trust in him, to rest in him. For when we do, even in the midst of those trials, we're being a a pleasing aroma to Christ, a living sacrifice to him. And the end result is, is that there is increased fruit of the Spirit. The final verse of, of this chapter Mark 9, verse 50 says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? 
Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Those are exhortations. Those are commands by Jesus. When we have salt, when we allow God to refine us through the trials of life and we grow in holiness, we grow in freedom from sin, being committed to our own sanctification and resting in the fact that Jesus is committed to our sanctification in a way that is not comfortable for us. When we do that, we end up having increased fruit of the Spirit. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Peace is one of the telltale markers of the fruit of the Spirit. So Jesus is intensely committed to your sanctification. And he's promised that one day this good work that he has begun, he will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. So that in faith, in him, you and I can stand faultless before the throne to the praise of his glorious grace. So there are six things that the disciples just didn't understand in this passage. These six things, some of them we may not understand real well either. So as we consider those, do you identify with what the disciples are failing to understand in one or more of these things? As you heard the teaching and the preaching of this passage, is there something that the Spirit of God is pricking your heart in, an area that you perhaps need to grow in your understanding of these things, the things of God? What's the Spirit prompting in you? Is he calling you to serve? Is he calling you to be more inclusive inclusive and, and warm and welcoming in your ministry right here at Grace and out in the world? Is he calling you to, to display that you understand greatness in God's kingdom by serving others? What sin needs to be confessed or renounced? What sin do you just need to make a formal declaration of abandonment and by faith rise up from there and turn the other way and walk in the freedom from sin that Christ purchased for you? What needs to be cut off in order for you to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? And do you need encouragement to stay the course in the midst of a trial? Jesus makes great provision for that. The Spirit is here. So as disciples, we're in a community together. We're to look out for our own holiness. We're to look out for one another's holiness. And we're to rest in the fact that Jesus is committed to our sanctification. Take some time now and just sit in silence and ask the Lord what it is that he wants to work in you to grow in your understanding of these things of God. Let me ask him in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the this passage for the things that you are teaching your disciples as we observe and the things that you are teaching us as we meditate on these verses. I pray that by your spirit now you would bring conviction where conviction is due. You would bring encouragement where encouragement is due and that we would all be changed, Lord, uh, having grown in our understanding of your kingdom plan, having grown in commitment to our own sanctification and having grown in our understanding that you are committed to our sanctification. And sometimes that means pain. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for who you are, and we entrust ourselves to you, our faithful God. In Jesus' name, amen.